Family, if you have a copy of God's Word, if you would take it and open with it, uh, open with me to First Peter, chapter four. We're continuing to consider in our sermon series through the book of First Peter that we are uh, the people of God in the land of exile, just like the original audience. Uh, last week we considered at the beginning of this chapter how we are to live for the will of God, and today we will end a section on relationships earthly relationships amongst the people of God, how, how the people of God relate to one another uh, during their time here in exile, uh, a section that goes all the way back to chapter 2, verse 11, and ends in chapter 4, verse 11. And in so doing, at the end of this section, uh, we will see that the, the tone of this text is urgent. He is reminding us, that Peter is reminding us, that the end of all things is at hand. Um, and what he is calling us to, in just a normal reading of the text, might be, might appear to be, rather ordinary. So the theme is urgent, um, and some, or the tone is, is urgent, but the theme is ordinary. And I think what he is reminding uh, the, 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 the church of, uh, us of this morning, is this, that we are to live for the glory of God with the end in Mind. We've declared it in song together. Let's see it together in the truth of Scripture. First Peter chapter 4. If you'll follow along, I'll read verses 7 through 11. Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded, for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, we just want to reiterate the words that we have just read in the truth of Scripture. God, to you and to you alone belong glory and dominion forever. Lord, there's great honor there. There's great privilege there. And God, in your word, there's great authority. And so, Father, we pray that, that we, your people, First Baptist Church of Rocky Mount, this morning, may we, by the way that we sit underneath the authority of your word, God, may that action bring you glory, we pray, as we, your people, consider how we can live for the glory of God with the end in mind. Lord, would you accomplish that, we pray. By the power of your spirit and the truth of your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Peter begins in this section by reminding them that the end of all things is at hand. At hand meaning that it could happen at any time now. There's a sense of urgency about this message, about this plea. We know elsewhere in Scripture that the Christian life is called a race and to use different words, Peter is reminding them, hey, listen, you might be on the last lap of your race. And so we see in the Council of Scripture a few reminders about that truth. 
Hebrews chapter 12 says, because that's true, we should lay aside every weight and we should run with endurance the race that has been marked out for us. Paul encourages us to to fight the good fight, to finish the race, to keep the faith. As First Peter is, or as, as Peter is writing here in First Peter, he is speaking theologically, not chronologically. He's not telling them, "Hey, like tomorrow it might be true." What he's saying here is that Jesus has accomplished all that is necessary for your salvation, and so that means that any time now Christ can return for you, and so your responsibility in light of that truth is to be ready. You see, the end increases our urgency. Anybody watch a football game yesterday? You know what happens when there's less than two minutes left in the game and the game is tied or the, the, the game is close? They have a whole different playbook that they go to. They call it the two-minute drill. Why? It's designed to end the game, to win the game. Why? Because it's close. It's at hand. Much more sober analogy in life. There's this whole unit of care that you receive at the end of your life called hospice care. It doesn't operate on most of the same rules of other doctors and other medical care. Why? Because it is the end of your life. And because the end is near, the game plan changes. And Peter is reminding Christians, hey, the end is near. Be ready for I'm coming back for you. And then he tells them how you are to be ready. Or as one pastor says it like this, that the imminence of the end should stimulate our action in the world, that we are to be ready. I don't know what your house looks like on a daily basis, but I know for us, when we have company, there's kind of like a set list of things that we like to accomplish before our company gets there. The girls know them as chores. Adults still have chores, don't we? And so when people are coming, we go and we get ready. So the house is ready for them. So Peter is reminding us as Christians of today that we are to make sure our heart, our house, our earthly dwelling is ready for the return of the Lord. When I got serious about my faith somewhere in my teenage years, I once thought that maturity Christian maturity was marked by great acts of supernatural faith. But the longer that I've been walking with Jesus, the more I've come to realize that great faith is ordinary acts given to an extraordinary God. Or one popular definition of faithfulness is long obedience in the same direction. And you see, that's what Peter is writing to remind the church of that in our text today. And I hope we can receive, receive some encouragement here that we are called to ordinary obedience to an extraordinary God. There's four specific commands, I believe, that he gives us this morning. One is we are to pray faithfully, love earnestly, to show hospitality, and fourth, to serve graciously. Let's begin verse 7 by seeing how we are called to pray faithfully. He says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded, for the sake of your prayers. The end of all things is at hand, therefore. And in that therefore, he's referring back to a few verses from last week where he reminds the church that, hey, everyone is going to give an account before the good and righteous judge. In verse 6 of chapter 4, he says, and this is why the gospel was preached to you, because the final judgment is coming. And because the final judgment is coming, 
He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, we're to pause, we're to summarize, think back, and then in this transition, consider. Therefore, we are to do what? Peter says, to pray. Because Christ could come at any time. Peter is writing to say that we should pray all of the time. Not just in tragedy or confusion or in chaos or in frustration or when we're caught in in sin or when we're caught in family crisis. He's saying that, hey, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, depend upon me. Pray to me. A couple ways he encourages us to pray. To be self-controlled in our prayers. To be sober-minded in our prayers. Self-control. Our favorite fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? Right up there with patience. My top two for sure. Self-controlled. Used in Scripture to describe the nature and character of God's people. That we are to be a people that are marked by a divine sense of calling and divine sense of purpose. That we are self-controlled. That we exercise discipline in our daily lives. Second, sober-minded. We are to be clear-minded in our prayers. We are not called to live in a fog. We're not called to live in confusion. We are called to live sober-minded. Elsewhere in Scripture that we see that we are to be filled with the Spirit. Be sober-minded is the teaching here. Why? For the sake of your prayers. Notice that word. Is it singular or plural? It's plural. Implies there are to be multiple prayers. Clear and consistent and constant communication. One of my favorite things about First Baptist is the ways and variety of ways in which we pray together as a church. Some formal, some informal. But you see, every single one of those gatherings is meant and teaches and models our dependency upon God. The message says it like this, that we are to stay wide awake in prayer. Don't doze off in prayer like some of you do in a sermon. Not that I would know. I'm not looking or anything. It says, stay wide awake. Open your eyes. See the life and dependence upon God in prayer. That's so countercultural, isn't it? Because so oftentimes at the end, we get caught in this craziness. Sometimes we get hysterical right at the end of something. We start stressing out. This anxiety builds within us when we feel like we're losing control of something. And what Peter is saying here is God is bringing the world to an end. Therefore, increase your dependence upon God. Don't increase your dependence upon yourself. Don't increase the efforts by which you try to control your life, your situations, or your circumstances. He says, increase your dependence upon God because he is bringing the world to an end. Increase your dependence upon him. The more your life gets crazy, the, the, the more your life feels out of control is a call in your heart and in your life to increase the faithfulness of your prayer life, to increase your dependence upon God. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, we pray faithfully. The next verse teaches us that we are to love earnestly. Verse 8, above all. Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter says, above all. All meaning all. 
above everything else in your life, here is the call of God on your life, to keep loving one another, not easily, but what? Earnestly. He's speaking of the primacy of love, the priority of love that is to capture the heart of the Christian. Look at how it's described in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I am, all that I have, and if I deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. You see, the call of the life on the life of the Christian, the call on the heart of the Christian is to be others-oriented in the way in which we love one another. Peter is reminding us of that, that the end is at hand. Therefore, above all other things, keep loving one another. I love how he describes that. He says, keep loving one another. It's not a one-time command. It's almost as if he knows the temptation will be that when we get frustrated with someone, that we will give up on our love for them. It's almost as if he knows that when life gets hard or when we're tired and get burned over and over and over again, our temptation is to give up. But what Peter is reminding to say is keep it up. Keep on loving one another. You ever seen a race or perhaps some of you have have ran a race and it's pretty long. There's a hydration station along the way where you stop and you pick up just enough water to make you mad and you drink it and you keep on running. In so many ways, I think that's the church, right? That we are to be reminded of that little peace that keeps us going on the Christian life. And that peace is love. That we are to keep on loving one another. It's as if Peter knows the temptation of love is that it will grow cold. That it will grow old. Or it will grow complacent. In your closest of friendships, even in the different family dynamics in your family, the different relationships that exist there. The temptation of love in church and in life is that it will grow cold over time. But the command of Peter is this, to keep loving one another earnestly. Peter also says it in chapter 1, verse 22. He said, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So above all, keep loving one another earnestly. This earnest love is a measure of our love. It's the way in which our love is measured. It's a deep, constant love that we have for one another. Last night, we were making a new chicken uh, marinade to put on the grill, and there's different measurements of different ingredients that you put into the marinade. Quarter cup of this, tablespoon of this, teaspoon of that. You see, the earnestness of our love is the measurement of our love that we are to have as a Christian. And as I said and joked earlier, that love is not an easy love. It's not something that will come natural to you because everything about the Christian life is a call for you to remember what Scripture says, to deny yourself. If this type of love came easy to you, then it would rest upon you. Love one another earnestly. Or as one says, love one another as if your life depended upon it. Why? Because love covers 
a multitude of sin. Our heart as a Christian, our, our heart as a church, should not be set on finding one another's sin. Our heart should be found in covering one another's sin. This is the aim of the Christian life. This is the aim of Christian relationships. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12 says it like this. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. So we're not called to sweep things under the rug. That would actually be unloving. The implication here is that sin will be present in your life, in your relationships, yes, even in the church. And the command is that that sin is to be met with love. And the Bible speaks very clearly on how that love takes place and takes shape within the context of relationships. Sometimes that love takes the form of restoration. The Bible speaks of that. Sometimes that love takes place of reconciliation. The Bible speaks to that. Both of them motivated by love, both biblical ways to both confront sin and then to cover sin. And both are motivated by the act of Christ because the blood of Jesus has covered it. And so when we neglect that truth in our lives or in the church or in your relationships, what we're actually doing is we're minimizing the cross of Christ. We're indirectly saying that his grace is not sufficient for that particular season, that particular person, that particular sin. But the teaching of Scripture is that we are to love one another in such a way, with such depth and with such beauty, that it covers, it makes amends, it forgives, it confronts, it covers sinfulness. And Peter, of all people, should know a thing or two about forgiveness. He is the one who approaches the Lord and says, How many times shall I forgive? You remember that story in Scripture? And Jesus says, 70 times 7. The same Peter is writing this to the church of the living God to remind them that we are to love one another fully, to love one another completely. And we love in this way because we are loved in this way. It's the beautiful connection. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that God in Christ no longer counts your sin against you. Psalm 103, that as far as the east is from the west is how far God has removed our transgressions from us. We love in this way because we are loved in this way. By the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for you, you are forgiven and free. He has taken the sin of the world upon his shoulders and through his shed blood on the cross for you, he has purchased your forgiveness. And today, there's a great invitation to you and for you that by grace, through faith, this sacrifice was for you. And this sacrifice wasn't to ignore your sin. It was to pay for your sin. This sacrifice wasn't to trivialize your sin. It was to make restitution for your sin. He stepped into your wrong and made it right. And that's what Peter is reminding the church of in this moment. That we are to love one another, that we are willing to step into it and restore, to reconcile, that our love can cover offense, can cover sin. That we love in this way because we are loved in this way. 
We're reminded of the beautiful text in 1 John chapter 4 that we love because he first loved us. Or Peter, think about it like this, that Peter is reminding the church in exile of what John said in John chapter 13, that the world will know that we are his disciples by the way in which we love one another. You see, why in the world would the love and grace of Jesus be attractive to the world around us if we can't even extend it to one another as a church? As we Christians living in exile, just like the audience was here, it's the call of love, to love one another earnestly, to keep on loving one another earnestly, even in less than ideal circumstances. Pray faithfully, we love earnestly. The third aspect that we see here in verse 9 is that we show hospitality. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Oh, if we could take an eraser to a couple words of that verse. To show hospitality, to care for strangers is what that means. It's both an Old Testament and New Testament command, particularly necessary in times of the Bible because inns and motels were not safe, oftentimes not clean, oftentimes very dangerous. And so hospitality was a much needed physical act and to care for one another. I would argue the way that has been transferred to our culture and our homes and to our lives is a transfer of the heart. And this is not just a call to people who are extroverted or to people who have enough square footage in their living room. This is a call to all Christians that we are to show hospitality without grumbling. It's modeled beautifully in the life of Jesus. Romans 15 verse 7, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. What a beautiful thought to reflect upon. How has Christ welcomed you? In what place did you come to Christ then? In what state did he welcome you to? Or found in John chapter 6, the great truth that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you. The great invitation of hospitality is the invitation for all eternity. In this moment, he is preparing a place for you to dwell for forever. We are to show hospitality to one another. One another. Christianity always has, always will be marked by hospitality. The joyful welcoming of people who are not like you, who you don't know, into the warmth that is yours in Christ. When is the last time that you welcomed someone into your life, into your home, into your calendar, into your text message feed, into your phone context? whose the world eyes would say doesn't belong there. That's what hospitality is referring to. And just so that we have a proper understanding of the difference between fellowship and hospitality. Fellowship is the implication that we fellowship together. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We know each other. There's joy in one another. But hospitality is treating outsiders like they're insiders. So when's the last time we, as a church, have treated an outsider like they're an insider? In your home, when's the last time you've treated someone who doesn't belong in your home like they're the royal guest in your home? After all, we welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed you without grumbling. It's almost as if hard work is implied, isn't this? Peter knows what he's calling these Christians in exile to is not going to come easy to them and it's not going to come natural to them. 
And so he adds this qualifying statement, you're to do all of this without grumbling. And as the argument builds, what we see here is that grumbling is not a reflection of the glory of God. That Jesus himself did not grumble on the way to the cross. That he did not grumble when he absorbed the wrath of your sin upon his own shoulders. And he will not grumble one day when he returns to call you home. There's joy and glory in these acts because he has been sent by the Father. He's living in obedience to the Father. And therefore, we use words like get to, not have to. This is a, a joy for the heart of the Christian because we remember how Christ has welcomed us. Therefore, we welcome others. A great book was written on this a few years ago entitled, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Isn't that a beautiful image? That the truth of the gospel that we have received by grace through faith, it comes with a house key. Not just for your friends, not just for those you like, not just for those you love, but for all. Peter continues to build on this, and the final reminder he gives us is that we are to serve graciously. Look at verse 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order, it's a hyphen there, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The teaching here is there are gifts, spiritual gifts that are given to you for the purpose of serving. That God has made you the way that you are with the gift that he has given to you so that you could in turn serve him with those gifts. Peter says it like this, as good stewards of God's varied grace. There's a variety and diversity of giftedness. We see this taught all throughout scripture. And it's not given to us to compete with one another. It's given to us that we could complement one another. That we are given gifts. And then the call here is to steward God's varied grace. You see, the way in which you use your gifts is a way in which you steward the grace that God has given to you. Or to say it like this, that God knows that it's going to take grace for us to put up with each other's gifts. Boy, isn't that true? In marriage, in life, in family, in friendship, and certainly in the church. But you see, the teaching here is the way in which we give grace to one another. And again, it's, the argument is building. It's a testimony of the love that God has placed within our hearts. And so for you to exercise your gift without grace is for you to fundamentally understand the gift that you have received. What Peter's bringing together here is that God has gifted every single one of us in unique and beautiful ways. And here's the great truth of Scripture that I believe the American church needs to understand now more than ever, and that is that we need each other, even when we don't want each other. You see, for you, Christian, God has called you, gifted you, But you know what? On your best day, you are in desperate need of the gifts of other people. And they need yours. For us, church, 
God has gifted us in beautiful ways to be the body of Christ. But we need one another's gifts. Even when each other's gifts drives us crazy. You see, we need one another. I think this is illustrated nowhere more beautifully than 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's the body of Christ. You see, we're not called to walk around armless, legless, headless, eyeless, earless. You see, God has orchestrated all of this. He's brought all of this together because he desires us to be the full and complete body of Christ. Serve one another out of the very grace that we've received in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to give a couple of very clear examples. He says, in the way that you speak, when you speak oracles, he's referring here to the teaching ministry of the church. And what he's saying here is when you teach, don't get up and use your own words. Don't waste people's time with your own words. When you get up and teach, whether a small group, a Sunday school class, and most certainly behind the pulpit, you give them the word of God. It's the only thing that we have to give one another. Don't speak your own words. Speak the word of God. And then secondly, he says, in the way that you serve. Serve in the strength that God supplies. That as you're serving, you rely upon God's strength. And we remember this argument is building here. So if we can connect this to hospitality just for a moment. I believe that a grumbling spirit is evidence that you are serving God in your own strength not in the strength that God has supplied you. So if you find yourself with bitterness growing in your heart or a grumbling spirit about a a relationship or an aspect of your life, a, a situation at work, or perhaps even a circumstance at church, and there's bitterness growing within you, there's a grumbling spirit growing within you, be reminded of the truth of God's word. And praise be to God that he supplies the strength that we need. You see, the, the, the Christian life is not up to the strength that you can muster. It's not up to the strength that you provide God. When you wake up in the morning, God is not surprised. Wow, Luke, you got a whole lot of energy you can expend for me today. You know what he's after in the morning? He's after my dependence upon God. He's after me to understand that I am to serve the Lord out of the, the strength that the Lord has given to me. Why? I love it when the Bible answers this why question for us. Look at Second part of verse 11. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. He's building this argument for us that we pray faithfully, we love earnestly, we show hospitality, we serve graciously in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Because to him and to him alone belong dominion and glory forever and ever. It's why the main idea of this text this morning is just that we are to live for the glory of God with the end in mind. That in everything, in the way that we pray, in the way that we love, in the way that we welcome, in the way that we serve, all of those can be a means for God to be glorified in your heart, in your life, and in our church. So the question of reflection and application for us this morning is this. Is God worthy of this glory? Is God worthy of this glory? If he is, then here's how we know. We pray faithfully. 
we love earnestly. We show hospitality and we serve graciously. I'm not sure how long it's been since you've played a board game that has the hourglass timer. You know, whenever it's your turn, you flip the timer over and sand starts dropping from top to bottom. See, there's so much that's true about that for your life. And we might not can visually see how much sand that we have left, but here's what we know. Moment by moment, our time is getting closer and closer to when we breathe our last breath. The great theologian C.T. Studd says this, there's only one life and it will soon be past. Only what is done for Christ will last. And so the invitation of this text this morning is an invitation to make your life count, to make your life last. To use the words of Peter, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, love. Therefore, pray. Therefore, welcome. Therefore, serve. You do these ordinary Christian actions out of the overflow of God's extraordinary love for you. This is what it means to be a Christian. And this is how the Christians, sons and daughters of the living God, are to live in exile. That God and God alone will get the glory that he and he alone deserves. It's the call of God on our lives. By way of application and invitation this morning is, is God receiving the glory from your life? Are you serving out of your own strength? Are you serving out of the strength that he provides you? Are you loving earnestly? Are you welcoming others with hospitality? Are you serving graciously? Are you grumbling in your spirit? Is God receiving the glory from your life? Is how you're spending your days on earth, will it last? You see, the end of all things is at hand. The invitation for us this morning is to live a life that counts by living in obedience to our God. Do you know? By way of salvation, do you know that this God who's calling us to this urgent command, the one who, as we talked about earlier, no longer counts your sin against you, thank God for the grace that he gives us. Do you know this God? The invitation is you can know him today. You can turn from your sin, turn to Jesus as your Savior by grace through faith today, and be reminded that this is an urgent call. The end of all things is at hand. None of us are promised another breath. None of us are promised another day. None of us are promised another week. Let's make our life count by living in ordinary obedience to our extraordinary God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for how it soothes our hearts, how it challenges our hearts, Lord, how it confronts the sin of our hearts. And Lord, as we prayed, as we began, God, our desire as a church is to sit underneath the authority of your word and allow your spirit to transform us day by day, moment by moment, into who you desire for us to become. That daily transformation, that daily self-denial. Lord, that's our heart. And God, we want you in everything to be honored and to be glorified because it's what you rightly deserve. And Lord, as we think and as we reflect upon the truth of your word, we pray that you would help us to respond in a way that is obedient to your Spirit's work within us even now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.